Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we will be taking a break from our usual format of discussing Beef Watch newsletter articles. Today's Beef Watch podcast is a roundtable conversation, and we'll be discussing the topic of preparing heifers and cows for calving, managing the actual calving event, and also some practices that we want to think about having in place to enhance calf health and care after calving. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by the veterinarians based at the Great Plains Veterinary Education Center on the campus of the U.S. Meat Animal Research Center located near Clay Center, Nebraska. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. Glad to be here. So before we dive into our topic, thought it might be good to have each of you go around and share a little bit about yourself. I know a number of you have just recently joined the staff there, so I thought it would be an opportunity just to have you share a little more about what you're doing there at the Great Plains Veterinary Education Center, and also what your role is in terms of interacting with producers. This is Brian Vanderlei. Um, hopefully a few people know who I am. I've been at the, the center here for about three years. My title is veterinary epidemiologist, so my role here is to do research and provide extension to uh, understand disease in people's herds and to try to help them find ways to improve animal health by understanding how those processes work. Hi, I'm Becky Funk. I am one of the new new faculty that just joined here in the last couple weeks. I come out of clinical practice in the panhandle, and uh, my title here is clinical teaching veterinarian and an extension specialist. And I'm Lindsay Wechter-Mead, and I have been in mixed animal practice for the last 12 years here in South Central Nebraska. Um, my position here is in teaching and extension, so I look forward to um, helping the new veterinarians that are coming into our practice, as well as helping producers and veterinarians out in the state. My name is Heldon Clark. I've been here since last April. I'm originally from Colorado, and uh, my uh, background includes uh, dairy private practice, cow-calf and feedlot practice, and food safety as well. Appreciate you all sharing a little about yourself and what your role is there. The focus of our topic today is going to be on getting cows and heifers ready for calving, the actual calving event itself, and then some things we can do from a management perspective to try and enhance calf health and performance after calving. So let's open it up and start first with uh, getting that heifer or cow ready for calving. Uh, we're in a time of year where for those who, have, who are early calving, they're actually maybe starting to be some folks getting geared up to start calving first calf heifers or maybe some cows now, especially those that are maybe in the seed stock business or have mixed cow-calf and also cropping programs. Share with us some things that producers ought to be thinking about as they start to look at the last part of the trimester there as those cows or heifers get ready for calving. What are some things they should be paying attention to and have their eye on? So I'll, I'll go ahead, Aaron, and start. I think for the people who are uh, close up to calving, this isn't going to be as helpful of a suggestion, but one of the things that I always want to make sure we, we covered with people that are getting ready to calve is that almost everything bad uh, in terms of outcomes at calving is tied to body condition of those cows at the time of calving. So depending at where they're at in their production cycle right now, whether they're beginning to calve or whether they're uh, they're still a, a month or two or three away, I think it's worth going out and making sure that those cows are, are in good body condition or at a minimum going out and assessing where they're actually at today. If, if their way is out, there's still some time potentially to change body condition to supplement those cows and make sure that they're in good shape. 
if they're not in good shape right now and they're getting ready to calve, there's probably some some practices and uh, some preparation they can do to prepare for what might be a little bit tougher season in terms of calving. So a little bit of data to share is that a couple studies have been done uh, that have associated uh, decreasing body condition with decreasing claustral transfer to calves. And there's also been some work done that demonstrates that cows who are body condition score fours or lower are more, almost two times more likely to experience dystocia compared to cows that are at least a five or above. So there's, there's a lot of good reasons to make sure those cows are in good shape. And this is probably as good an opportunity as any to go out there and assess those cows and make sure that their body condition is adequate. So you mentioned a little bit about adequate body condition and some of the impacts of that. What are some of the impacts that producers might expect if they go out and they find, you know what, I've got cows that are body conditions and score four or maybe heifers that are, you know, high four. What are the impacts of that? You mentioned increase in dystocia, but how can we think about some things aside from increasing their nutrition level and trying to increase body condition? What are some options maybe we have if we're in a situation where we realize we're dealing with some cows that aren't quite where they need to be? I think the most important thing is going to be to be very vigilant at calving time to make sure that calves get up a nurse. Almost all the outcomes that are, are tied to low body condition are related to the speed at which calves are born, the likelihood that they're going to experience some sort of difficulty during birth, and then the quality of the colostrum and the ability of the calf to access that colostrum. So as, as they're born, especially if there's a dystocia event or the cow's a bit weak, that birth is going to take longer. Those calves actually get acidemic. They get an acid, lactic acid buildup in their blood. And that creates central nervous system depression in calves. They're going to be slow, kind of depressed, weak appearing calves. And a lot of that's tied to their, their blood pH. So in cases like that, when you know you're, when your cows are at higher risk because they're in lower body condition, being vigilant to make sure that calves are getting up and being ready to intervene with management strategies like milking cows or heifers and, and feeding the colostrum to the calf are going to be more important to make sure those calves do well. It's, I, I think the most important thing if, if the cows are not in good condition right now is to plan on watching more closely than you might otherwise expect to do so. Any other management practices we ought to be thinking through or try to have in place to help us as we get these cows ready for calving? One thing that I like to have is kind of what I call my calving toolkit. So making sure that you are just physically prepared for when that calf hits the ground. Um, a couple things that are important. The, the number one thing that we always like to stress, obviously, is having that relationship with your veterinarian. Um, having a number on hand and knowing when to call and, and talking to them before you even get into that calving situation so that you are prepared. And then other simple things like making sure that you have clean straps or chains, um, some sort of disinfectant if you do have to intervene, obviously sleeves and lube, and then just being prepared to milk out that cow or somehow to get that colostrum into that calf with a feeder or a nipple. Sure. Also, maybe some things you like to see producers have in place in terms of facilities. Obviously, all of you have been veterinarians and have helped assist cows at calving. What are some things from a facility perspective that can help people when they need to assist or actually have a veterinarian come and help them with that process? 
I think one of the biggest things is keeping the safety of everybody in mind, um, both for the cow, the calf, uh, the producer, and the veterinarian. We get a lot better outcomes when we have to intervene if, if we can keep everybody safe and working efficiently. Yeah, and then one thing I'd like to add is sometimes a processing shoot may not be the very best place for a cow to deliver a calf because if she goes down and is unable to get up, she might be pretty stuck in a processing shoot where if you have a more of a calving chute that has a wide flat bottom, straight sides, and the posts and sides can be removed if needed, that can really be nice for having a vet come out and help you with the calving or if you just have a cow go down, if you can get the sides of the chute away from her so that she can stand up more easily, uh, that can really, really be nice. Let's talk also a little bit about some tools to have on place in terms of helping that calf if it needs to be fed some supplemental colostrum, either by milking out and delivering that or by actually maybe using a colostrum replacement product. Give us some perspective there on what you think might be important for producers to understand and realize about getting colostrum into the calf. We can probably start with going through this is this is my hierarchy and i'll let my my colleagues weigh in and decide whether uh, they want to offer a different strategy but the the way that i usually think about providing colostrum to a calf is that the ideal situation is that we have a healthy vigorous calf that quickly stands up and nurses its own colostrum meal from the cow we all know that there's lots of things that get in the way of that so there's got to be a, a backup plan to that so Understanding just a little bit of the physiology of what happens when a calf nurses is important. When a calf starts to nurse on a cow, there's a, a reflex that basically creates a, a straight shot from their esophagus to their small intestine. And that takes that colostrum pretty much straight from their mouth and puts it in the intestine where it's going to be absorbed. If that reflex doesn't happen, the colostrum can be deposited in their rumen, which is pretty small and rudimentary when they're a newborn calf, but it still will hold some volume. And what happens is the colostrum doesn't move over as quickly into the intestine and, and absorption can take longer. And there's a little bit of data out there that would suggest you get a lower overall passive transfer level than what you're going to see from nursing. That being said, good rule of thumb is never to let perfect be the enemy of good. And if tubing is the option that is best for the situation, in other words, the calf is compromised or the, uh, that's, that's what's available, um, all, whatever might drive tubing to be the, the best option to fit the situation, it's much better to tube something than to feed nothing at all, uh, hoping to get the calf to nurse later. The concept of products that we can use in place of colostrum is an important discussion as well. Colostrum from the cow is really the best possible solution for that calf. It was built to provide immunity to that calf in its environment. So the cow's been exposed to the, the environmental challenges the calf's also going to experience. And that's, it's custom made to protect that calf in that environment. If for some reason we cannot milk the cow because she's fractious or, or she has no milk or something else, then looking at uh, replacement or supplemental products is useful and keeping those on, having those on hand prior to the, calf, the beginning of the calving season is a good idea. In uh, the time it takes to get those, we can we can lose the optimal window of absorption for colostrum. So there's two big categories of products that you can use as uh, in place of the cow's colostrum. One of them, one big category is colostrum replacers. And the other category is colostrum supplements. 
replacers are typically, if you read the labels, they're going to be dried bovine colostrum. So if you flip the bag over and take a look, they're going to specifically say dried bovine colostrum, and it's going to be the first ingredient on the label package because it's pretty much what it is. In these colostrum supplement products, when you read the label, frequently what they're going to say is spray-dried bovine plasma, and it may be a secondary ingredient. In some of the research that's been done, they've shown that the failure of passive transfer rates are much higher in calves that receive the supplements because they really weren't designed to be a replacer. So when, when producers are looking out for the best interest of their calf, the opportunity to use a replacer instead of a supplement, especially if you accidentally pick up supplements instead of replacers, if you go to the, the vet's office or the store, uh, is something to, to be careful of and avoid. The other thing to bear in mind with those products is that the target we, we usually recommend, and this is unfortunately based on research from dairy calves, is we're, we're aiming to get 100 to 120 grams of, of antibody into the calf. If you go and read those bags and read the labels, they're typically delivering 50 to 60 grams per bag, which means that in order to get an adequate dose, we really should give two, and that can be very expensive. Those are usually somewhere between 20 and 40 bucks per bag, depending on which variety you get. There's lots of decisions to make. There's some cost benefit, um, but the, the consequences of failure of passive transfer are very expensive. Uh, a lot of times it results in dead calf. So it's, it's worth thinking about and making sure that you have the products that you want to have on hand before the season begins. The other thing I'll throw in there that, that Brian didn't mention, I'll also encourage my producers never pass up the chance to, to freeze some colostrum if you have some extra. Um, if you have a cow that produces a stillborn and she still has colostrum, um, milk her out and toss that in the freezer. It can be a good opportunity for to get some uh, in-herd colostrum into some of these calves. That's a great suggestion. So I just want to follow up on that a little bit. Give us some perspective on bringing in colostrum from outside sources. What are some of the risks with that? What should producers be aware of if they are considering or thinking about doing that? Aaron, you should have seen the collection. <laughs> <laughs> the easiest way to put that um, with, with anything that you do in your practice is just to make sure you know where it comes from. Don't take something from some random that you don't know your source. That's the easy way to start. The other reason we encourage producers to use classroom from within their own herd is because you're, you're going on that collective herd exposure. The immune system that you want to build is already there in that herd, right? So if we bring, you can bring in classroom from outer sources, but it may not have the specific immunity that you're looking for either. Yeah, and then in addition to that, there are some very real disease risks. If you were to inadvertently bring in classroom from a Yoni's positive cow, from a cow that has a either transient or a persistent BVD infection, you could do a lot more harm than good. So something to be cautious of. So let's circle back a little bit. I kind of led us down the path of thinking about colostrum with the calf, but we actually hadn't got that cow to calving yet. So let's come back to that and talk a little about the stages of parturition, some things to observe with that, what's happening there, and, and when is intervention warranted? So I'll hit the stages real quick. It's, it's probably not the most important conversation. And I'll let some other uh, folks here talk about the important conversation. But the, the stages, there's the, the first stage of labor often goes unnoticed. It's cows that are restless. They're in the process internally of going through dilation, prepping themselves to, to push that calf out. Those are the cows that are separating themselves from the herd. They just start to see 
kind of that last little bit of udder turner develop in those cows. And then the second stage of labor is when they're actively pushing, and that's when you expect to see pieces of the placenta, pieces of the calf start to show up. And then the, the last stage is actually the delivery of the placenta if it hasn't happened, and, and we can kind of cover those bases as we go around the table here. So we have three seasoned practitioners in here, so I'm going to let them tell you what they told their clients to do in terms of when to call, like when, when, when's a good time to know that this isn't going the way it's supposed to. So I'll, with that, I'll throw out, I always told my producers I'd rather have a call early than late, give us the chance to intervene, even if it's just ask questions. Sometimes we can, we can talk you through it on the phone and, and tell you that everything's going right, or we can confirm that you need to get her in and, and check her. The other thing is, is don't be afraid to get that cow in and check her. If your gut's telling you things are just not quite what they seem, it does not hurt to check her and see where she's at. If she's not dilated, then that's good to know. I, I had a really simplified version, and, and there's a lot of different variants to this, but I usually said, if you do not have progression in that stage two in a heifer within 30 minutes, you need to go look and see why. And then I, I did extend it to an hour in a cow. But that's all. Positive progression is the most important thing. And to remember not to, I always like to tell people maybe don't hover too much because that can that can stall that progression. But make sure that you you are checking on that and that you just see, you know, a little bit more further what you need to go in that time frame. Yeah, and then if you see anything abnormal, like one foot coming and nothing else, or just a head and no feet, or you see the nose and two feet all right together uh, at the exact same level and then no progress past that point, anything that seems kind of out of that normal uh, diving position that a calf should come out in, if you see something odd or strange uh, as far as the calf's position, that's, that's definitely a time to, to take a look and see what needs to happen next. And then also one other thing that comes to mind, uh, a breech calf where the calf is coming tail first and the hind legs are, are forward towards his nose, that's going to make a cow act like she wants to go into labor and then she's going to stop. And, and you're, I, most producers describe just not feeling good about it. They just knew something was happening, but they, they uh, either follow up right away and often there's a very good outcome in that situation or they wait too long and that calf ends up dying. So whenever you have something where you just have butterflies in your stomach, you just feel like all's not well, that's something to listen to. It's, it's better to intervene sooner rather than later in those situations. The thing that kind of lays on top of that is I've been called many, many times with a history of doc. She, was, she looked like she was going to you know, calve maybe two or three days or four days ago, and she just stopped. And they're, they're bringing her in because today she looks kind of sick. <laughs> and normally what happened is that when, when a cow looks like she's going to calve, she probably is trying. And that's where that kind of that butterfly meter can, can help. If, if she looks like she's trying to calve, she probably is. And if you don't see a calf, something went wrong. And if you, if you choose to ignore that, what happens is sometimes we, we not only lose a calf, but when we get to a situation where a calf's been dead inside a cow for three or four days, our risk of losing the cow goes up a lot too. So don't ignore those, those cows that they're, they're showing the signs of, of wanting to calf. They separate off. They usually have some level of tail elevation. So they're running around with tails up or they're laying down, getting up and laying down. 
or they're they look like they'll they'll push for a little bit and then stand up and run off somewhere else. Those are animals that if they don't do something in a pretty short period of time, usually at most an hour or two, something is wrong and it needs to be addressed. So let's talk about the time of calving there. When we need to assist a cow at calving, obviously there's a place where I've reached my point where my skill set's no longer able to handle this. How do you coach the producers you work with through that in terms of thinking about when they need to call their veterinarian and uh, be proactive around that? That's, that's a big part of my um, thought process of your being prepared. Um, being prepared is much better than dealing with the consequences afterwards. So talking to your veterinarian before you start calving, um, you know, we are more than happy to help you explain what a normal presentation looks like and when you should be calling us because we like to help versus having to fix a major problem, you know? So one of the big things is, is understanding what you're feeling when you're going in there. And that just requires education. Um, there's a lot of sources out there, but obviously I feel that your veterinarian is going to be the best one. And if in any doubt you, you do not feel confident or you have questions and that's, that's why we're here, you know, is give us a call. And sometimes we can talk you through it on the phone. Yeah. Another thing is know when you're, you're too tired, when you're starting to wear down, there comes a point and it better if you just throw in the towel sooner rather than later where you've been in and out of a cow enough times and tissues are starting to get less, less uh, lubricated and, and things are just not going well and you know it and you're starting to get tired. That's the time to call instead of continuing for another hour, please let us help you if possible. And uh, let's get an issue solved sooner rather than later. I would tell veterinary students that I've taught that if you can't figure out what's wrong and solve it in 15 to 20 minutes, or at least get it on the on a pretty substantial path to, you know, if you have a if you've identified that the calf is not in the right position and you've got one of the legs up but you haven't got the other one up and you're pretty sure you can get it in, in another five minutes, then continue on. But my experience has been that most of the time if, if I'm gonna get it delivered vaginally. The solution is well on its way in just a few minutes. And if we fight longer than a half hour or more, those almost never turn out well. And going to a C-section actually offers us a better opportunity of keeping everybody alive, including the cow. The theme so far, and I'll reiterate it one more time, is that early intervention is so much more rewarding than a late intervention. By the time somebody has tried, and then they, they go to the house and get their spouse, and they give it a try, maybe they got to... They got a neighbor that's really good at pulling calves. They come out and give it a whirl. My experience, and I've usually I'm the, the situations in which I've practiced, that's what happens. There's usually two or three people that have tried before it came to me. And my survival rate for calves in those situations was less than 25%. It was very unlikely that calves were going to make it through that. And we would have high cow mortality. So if those calves are quickly corrected, the, the positions are corrected or if we, we just discover that it's too big to come through vaginally and we go straight to a c-section an earlier c-section is so much easier to get a cow through than a one that's done too late the other component i'll throw in there along with the escalating time component is escalating force very rare that i see any good outcome if problems are solved by escalating force <laughs> to a high level if you can't pretty easily correct that and um, that calf isn't coming with a, I won't say a, a low amount of force, but there's a limit. You know, they, they tell us the rule of thumb is if two guys pulling on it 
um, can't deliver that calf, then you're probably approaching too much force. And if you're you're going for a live cow and a live calf, it's time to time to make that call and look for some other options. To illustrate that point just a little bit more clearly, we have a device here where we can measure how much force we're putting on the chains when we when we pull. And the average adult, depending on their gender, can generate somewhere between 100 and 200 pounds of force on the chains if they're pretty much lean back those handles and, and pulling with everything they've got. As soon as we put a jack on, jack on, we'll, we'll take that about six times. You can get to 1,200, and big individuals can get close to a ton of force on those chains. So at a ton, we're talking about doing nerve damage to the cow. Severe skeletal, like broken bones on the calf are, are real possibilities. And we haven't even started talking about the, the use of stronger mechanical interventions, four-wheelers, pickups, tractors. Come those are those are 100% off limits if you want cows and calves to survive. So talk a little about just around hygiene and, and good practices when we go to examine that cow. How can we make sure that we go in and keep things clean and also help to prevent infection going forward? Part of my toolbox um, is, is having like Novasan or Betadine scrub, something like that. You always just start with clean. You always just think that things should be clean. So a nice stainless steel bucket is is a wonderful tool to have. You can clean that out easily. Um, you use a little bit of that Nova Sand solution in there and then actually clean that perineal area before you even go in. I mean, the manure is going to be a huge, obviously, introduction of bacteria, and we're trying to limit as much as we do there. So making sure that you have a clean sleeve on um, and sterile lubricant or at least somewhat sterile and using that Nova Sand solution to make sure that you can clean yourself the best before you actually enter into that vaginal calf. As uh, the cow is in the process of giving birth to a calf, she is, as she pushes, she's going to be defecating quite a bit. That's, that's normal. If your arms are in and you're getting your chains on the calf's legs or uh, trying to get a head up that's back or a leg down and she defecates on your upper arms, you wouldn't necessarily have to come out immediately and get cleaned up. But if you come out to do something else, you need to get those sleeves off, get clean sleeves on, clean up her perineum. If you stuff your pockets with paper towels before you get started, that's a great way to be able to quickly, efficiently clean up a little bit. But you need to go in clean each time. And if you have a box of breeder sleeves, those are very cost-effective, cheap. Um, so if you go through quite a few on one calving, it's really not a large dollar figure. And it's it's better to be clean than to wish it had been later. So one thing to add to that, Aaron, is that it's not just about keeping the cow healthy. It's about keeping ourselves healthy. There are a number of things that we can get from cows if, we, if we're not uh, careful about making sure we avoid contact with some of those uterine fluids, especially at the time of calving or, or parturition for almost all the animals we routinely deal with, even more so as we go into sheep and goats. If there are any of your listeners that have those, there is a number of opportunities to get some pretty nasty uh, diseases from pathogens that are shed at the time of parturition. So those sleeves are good for protecting the cow from infections and they're, they're really good to be able to shed those and take off the contamination and not have it on our skin and available to infect us as well. So it's always, it's a good practice to get into. So let's talk about a situation where maybe we've gotten to a cow and the, she's been laboring a while or first calf heifer and we're able to deliver the calf, but that calf is a little slow to start. What are some things we can do to encourage that calf to start breathing and 
and try to set it up to get started. Yeah, so one thing that uh, to take a piece of straw and slip it up the calf's nostril a little ways and just tickle around in the uh, nostril like two or three inches in, that will often stimulate them to breathe. So that's one of the best things we have. For a long time, they used to hang calves over the fence by their hind legs to clear fluids. And uh, most of the fluids that we find in the calf's uh, airway are just right nostril. So just, just getting those fluids, just squeezing the nose and kind of stripping down almost as if you're milking the end of the nose just for a second, will get most of those fluids out of the way and there really is no need to hang that calf by its hind legs or to swing it around in circles. I do two things routinely when I pull a calf. And the first thing is to make sure that when it's on the ground, it's not on either left or right side because you need to have both lungs open to inflate. So I actually pull the back legs up underneath of the calf so that it's kind of almost dog sitting it with front legs out. And that allows both sides of the chest to be open so that when it does take a breath, both lungs are coming open. And then another trick I have is if we aren't getting any breath, in addition to using the straw, is actually to use a little bit of acupuncture. Um, it actually works if you grab like an 18 gauge needle and you just poke it right into the nasal planum. And it, it's really easy right in between where the nose is at. And you just, just basically push it in there and kind of do a tiny little twist. That actually stimulates a breath. And more often than not, that will get those calves to start breathing for me. I set mine up the same way um, Lindsay does. And then the, the next step I take is um, start stimulating that calf. Don't necessarily have to drag it around in front of the cow, but have a towel there or something. Give them a good rub down because a lot of times that stimulation, that's what the, that's what the cow normally does. If we can mimic that, it, it gets that circulation going and helps stimulate them. And um, a lot of times if you do that, once we get them breathing and do that, you know, by the time... I get done cleaning up or putting something away, they'll be sitting up shaking their head and, and ready to go. So a couple things to remember about the kind of the physiology of the calf's first breath is that when that calf is born, it's never had air in its lungs before and they're kind of stuck together. And you can think about it that way. And the first breath is going to be the most difficult one that calf takes in its life. It's like when you try to blow a balloon the first time. It's kind of hard to get the first breath in, but then once you get it started, it gets a little easier. That's it's pretty much the same principle as what's going on in a calf's lung. So the problem we have with some of these things, and Hal mentioned a couple of those, when we hang them up, or when that calf is upside down, or even when it's on its side, its intestines and stomach are laying on part of its lung, or all of its lung if it's upside down. And that's adding more pressure against its ability to take the breath, which is that it's already difficult because of the, the fact there's never been air in there. So it's important to make it, the setting them up the way that Lindsay and Becky both described gives them a better chance to, to have those lungs inflate. One other thing that I'll add to that stimulation with the rubbing and sometimes the acupuncture is you cut hands and kind of pound on the sides of their chest. It'll stimulate stimulate some of the same things the cows would but it also I don't know if there's something about compressing the chest that that makes it a little bit easier for them to take that breath one other comment I'll make is that sometimes people use I think they're, they're often marketed as like calf savers they look like kind of a an air they have a little cone on them that you put up the calf's nose and then you pump the air in those can work but one one thing you got to do is make sure that you pinched the esophagus shut so that takes a that's something your vet probably is going to have to show you how to do. Because if you just push air into a calf's nose without having closed off its esophagus, 
that's actually the path of less resistance, and we just kind of bloat them, keep pushing air into those chaos without uh, actually forcing it into the trachea and into the lung. So if you are, you know people who use those things, make sure there's a little technique to make that work well. So we've got a calf that we had a little challenge delivery with or was compromised at birth. Should we try to let that calf nurse itself or should we go ahead and milk the cow out and give it some colostrum? What would be a good process there? There was some research done in Canada just a couple of years ago where they looked at calves that were born assisted. So they categorized either easy or hard assist. And then they looked at their, their suckle reflex. So there's, there's two bigger assessments there. And what they found is that calves that were born assisted were much more likely to have a weak suckle, which was basically their measure of vigor. And essentially the, the results were that if they were born assisted, there was greater than a 90% chance that they would not stand in nurse classroom by four hours of age. So I think that data provides a reminder that if we've gone through the trouble of assisting a cow calf, that calf probably is compromised to some degree because we assisted, we had to. We need to go the last step and make sure that that, that cow is milked out if possible and that calf is fed the colostrum. Regardless of whether we think it, it might do it or not, the data we have says that most often it's not going to happen. I'll add one quick comment there. So uh, at Colorado State, one of my professors, the beef cattle instructor for the clinical part of my training was Dr. Bob Mortimer, and it was his opinion that if we've gone to the trouble to catch the cow and pull the calf, then the job's not done until she's milked out and that calf's meant to fed the colostrum. And we talked about... Uh, the calf nursing is better than being tube fed. There might be kind of a sweet spot there though, because if you get good at tube feeding calves, and that's something your vet can help you learn if you don't know how to do it yet. Uh, if you get good at it, you can set the bulb of the tube feeder about halfway down the esophagus. And as you run that colostrum in, you're going to feel that calf, you'll feel in your hand the uh, swallowing reflex. And that calf is going to be swallowing that colostrum. And you, you uh, as you gain skill, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll understand what I mean. And you'll uh, be able to get the calf, even if it's not nursing from a nipple, it's going to be swallowing. And as there's, I don't have data behind this, but um, I just think that from the physio physiological reasoning, it's going to be swallowing that. It's esophageal groove is going to be closing. And it, that colostrum is going to end up where it needs to end up. <coughs> So let's talk about now kind of transitioning. We've assisted the cow, we're post-calving, or just some post-calving management practices. Obviously, the first two weeks are pretty critical to that calf's life in terms of if we're going to have loss, it often either occurs right at the time of calving or in the first couple of weeks of life. What are some things we can do to help just create an environment where we're promoting a good management practices that can promote calf health? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll take a crack at that one here first. So that calf can spend its first month in a clean environment. Its odds of getting diarrhea or uh, any other ailment are greatly reduced compared to a calf that is in a dirty environment. So let me take a minute to explain what I mean by that. If you've seen an outbreak of scours in a herd of calves, 
one thing that is almost always true is that the oldest calves are not the ones that come down with scours. It's going to be the later born calves that end up with scours. And that's due to a concept called virus amplification. And, and what that means is that the older calves are going to pick up a few uh, pathogens from the other cattle that are in their environment, cows, bulls, anything else that's been in their environment. They're going to get a low dose of pathogens from those, and they're not going to get sick right away, but they, they're going to amplify that virus, and they're going to excrete a lot more virus into the environment than was in the environment they were born into. And then if that happens over and over and over with a few waves of calves, the amount of virus uh, and bacteria in that environment is going to go up dramatically. So the calves that are born into that heavily contaminated environment, those are the ones that are going to get scours. Those are the ones that are going to get sick and have problems. Uh, so the best thing I can tell you to prevent that is that if calves can be with other calves that are within uh, two weeks of their age, so basically you have every group of calves is segregated into two-week cohorts, and then they don't get mixed until the youngest calves are at least 30 days of age. Those are going to be some rules of thumb that are really going to alleviate a lot of scours-type problems in a, in a group of young calves. Uh, so those are concepts that go back to sandhills calving. And when some people hear sandhills, they think, well, we calve in a pen. We can't, imp we can't implement any of those kinds of things. We just don't have the ability. And that's not necessarily true. Uh, if you can wrap your mind around some of the virus, that concept of virus amplification, then there's all kinds of possibilities, even if you calve in pens. If you can just get calves segregated into two-week cohorts, two, that means the calves that are born in a two-week period, are they all stay together. And then the calves that are born in the next two-week period don't go in with those. They stay by themselves. If you can se segregate calves out like that until the oldest ones are 30 days old, then they can be remixed with uh, a lot less concern. And whether that's pens or small pastures or whatever it needs to be, if you're able to do that, you can really save yourself a lot of trouble down the road. Add to that just a little bit. The, maybe it's helpful to describe the worst case scenario that frequently occurs, and that's that we cows that are in a in a lot calving environment. Maybe they're they're brought into a lot to calf right before their uh, the calf is born, or maybe they're they're basically housed in there leading up to calving. And one of the things that people do to try to manage scours is pair out. So they'll, they'll calve in those lots and then pair those, those pairs into a, another pasture. And that pasture actually becomes the place where the scours, the viral amplification that Helen talked about happens. It's not happening necessarily in the calving lot as much as it's happening out where all those calves are, are living and they start getting commingled across a larger and larger age range. But if you think about ways to, to break the cycle, as Helen mentioned, what we need to think about is kind of how do you start the calving season over during the middle of calving season? So the Sandhills calving system was designed to do that, but it's very land and labor intensive. There are ways that you can design pairing out systems to achieve nearly the same effect, maybe not quite to the same level of efficacy, but close. But again, you've heard a lot of this in this podcast, but the experts in that are, are the veterinarians that you work with every day. And going back to the idea of a pre, sort of pre-calving preparation, having the veterinarian go through a calving plan that looks at ways that in, in the circumstances that a particular individual might have at, at their ranch that 
whatever limitations are going to get in the way of, of what's ideal, to find something that's going to work, it's going to get 80% of the good for 20% of the effort, and uh, try to keep as many of those calves at as low a risk as possible. Any other thoughts on some post-management practices after calving that first month of life that could be helpful to producers as they think about ways to facilitate an environment that promotes calf health? I think this is a good place to kind of circle back to where we started to this is a good place to remember not to drop the ball on your nutrition um, once you hit calving and go into lactation you just put those cows in the biggest demand they're going to have in their production year so I know it gets hectic and people get stretched thin during calving season but keeping an eye on that nutrition and continuing to pull those cows through calving in good body condition maintaining that condition um, will pay dividends both in your calf health and vigor, and then when you go into rebreeding season. One other thing I might add right here is if, you've, uh, if you need to uh, calve in a pen, those calves need a clean, dry place with good ventilation to lay down. What a lot of people do that calve in that kind of, kind of a setting, one of the things that they will do is make these calf escapes. So maybe a covered, a little covered hut, or something like that with, with holes in it to allow for plenty of good, clean air to circulate through there, but not a draft, not, not just a full-blown wind, but, uh, but good ventilation with clean, dry straw or clean, dry corn stalks in there, something that the cows can't get into. That can be something that the calves will use quickly. They'll use it a lot, and they'll really, they'll really uh, it'll alleviate a lot of environmental stresses if they can get in there and lay down in a clean, dry, well-ventilated place out of the wind. So whether that's the corner of a pen and you just stretch a tall hot wire that the cows can't get under but the calves can and just bed the corner of a pen, or it's something outside the pen where they just go through a little calf gate and walk into it, uh, farmers and ranchers find some very creative way to make ways to make these kinds of things and uh, I I really like them I think it gives those calves a really good respite from the pressures of a pen calving type situation I would add for your calf health during those first 30 days again timing and intervention is key so you could do all the best things that you could do for management strategies and you're still you know you could still have a sick calf so if you see one that is you know slow to rise um, you're starting to see some scours of dehydration a lot of those get their their past just being able to tube them a bag of electrolytes and thinking they're going to make it. So making sure again you have a plan with your veterinarian. Uh, you know, a lot of times that those require hospitalization, that those require IV fluids to be able to bring that dehydration status back, and that's going to that's going to be what's ultimately probably going to save them is to make sure they don't get dehydrated and go down quickly. So intervening quickly before it's too late is important. I want to circle back right now and just kind of talk about time of calving and. As we record this, we're sitting here mid-January, and we can have some pretty nice days in January and February and March, or we can have some pretty cold, wet, nasty ones. Give us some perspective on if we get into a situation where we're calving and we're in a cold, wet conditions where calves are being born, whether it's a snowstorm or just cold, wet rain, and, and calves are obviously in a hypothermic state, what are some things we need to think about to try to intervene there and do the best we can to work with that calf to get it back to the body temperature it should be and then get it back with a cow. If chilled calves are gonna be a major problem and two tricks uh, that I like to use, one is everybody 
you know, everybody's heard of a calf hut or a calf warmer. That's important. I would just make a big plug to make sure that you keep that clean because that can obviously be a very big source of contamination. So cleaning it in between calves. Um, another trick that I like to use um, to suggest is, is if you have the ability to use a warm, warm water bath, that will actually increase that calf's body temperature significantly. I've had producers just use mineral tubs that you fill full of warm water, um, or if you have the ability to get to a bathtub. Those are, those are good, important things from external warming sources. Um, and then internally is making sure that you're getting them something to eat. So a good warm meal will help a lot to help warm up a calf. The one thing I would add to the warm meal is that makes me nervous about passing transfer is that they'll feed warm milk replacer or something to a calf that's cold and just been born. The first thing that a calf has to eat is colostrum. So warm colostrum is a great way to warm up a chilled calf. It delivered via tube is a good way to get it in there and, and warm that calf internally. But to put anything else in that calf before the colostrum goes in compromises that animal's ability to transfer antibody into its bloodstream. So then you kind of you run from one crisis to another, you save them from the, the hypothermia, but they're now a failure to pass the transfer and they're more susceptible to disease. So it's important to remember that. Shelter, bedding are, are all really important things. The, the pairing back up with cows after a calf's been in a warmer is a challenging thing. I have very few good suggestions about exactly how to do that. I know it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It's hard work. And sometimes this last year we saw a lot of circumstances that occurred that it got way out of hand. Mm -hmm. I heard stories about up to a hundred calves that had to be brought back out and tried to try to get the mother back up. So challenging. It kind of brings back a much bigger discussion, which probably better not start too much here, but when do we calve and, and why are we trying to do it at that point in time during the year? So I'm sure you've got better experts on that than us, Aaron. Mm -hmm. I want to touch on a couple things that were mentioned. First, mentioned putting calves in a bathtub, and I think it is important for listeners to recognize that there's some disease risk to humans with that. And so make sure that uh, I think your idea of a mineral tub or something that we don't also have people taking a bath in is a pretty important one. You might think you've got that clean, but uh, there's been some disease transfer happen from from calves to humans with that. So I think that's important. I guess also just uh, where do we want to use a rectal thermometer to help us kind of get a gauge on where a calf's at as we're thinking about stage of hypothermia? That's a good question because there's, there's interesting things that happen to circulation throughout the process of hypothermia. So we're not really measuring core body temperature when we, we measure a rectal temperature. We're measuring pelvic cavity temperature. And one of the first things that happens in hypothermia is the animal is going to constrict all the blood vessels on its kind of outside layer. So that includes the pelvis, the skin, the, the legs, things like that. If you stick your fingers in their mouth, it's going to feel cold. And that's because they're constricting those blood vessels and trying to keep that heat circulating in the core to keep those core organs warm. So when you, you that can turn out a couple different ways. Um, initially, you're going to see a number that's going to show up very cold because it, it's probably colder than what the core of the calf is. My experience has been that when you start seeing a number on a rectal thermometer that's below like 95 degrees, the chances of survival in that calf are, are diminishing very quickly. But when you, when you start to warm that animal back up, there's a couple things that can happen. One is that your thermometer can show almost fever-like conditions 
when you really haven't changed their their lower core temperature yet, or you can you can go the other way and, and overwarm them because they're still vasoconstricting. It depends on how far they've gone. There's a there's a balance. You're going to race against time because the longer they're cold, the worse things get. But if you warm them too quickly, you're actually probably not warming the core, which is what, what we need to have happen. And you can kind of cook the outside a little bit and leave the inside in a bad spot. So rectal temperatures probably initially are a good way to assess the prognosis, how likely it is that they're going to pull through. They might not be the best way to reestablish that you've actually brought the cap up. So making sure that the cap is is behaving in a normal way is a better indicator probably of, of alleviating the hypothermia than actually measuring a rectal temperature and seeing a number that uh, we think correlates with a normal temp. I very rarely would have a producer go on rectal temp. Uh, I actually coach them through using more of the shivering response. If you know, if you kind of know how that progresses, they get cold enough that they don't shiver. So as they warm up, they're going to start shivering again. And I always tell producers, once they start shivering, we need to keep warming them slowly until they actually stop shivering again and they're up and bright. And ideally, I'd like to see them interested in eating. Um, that's when I truly know that they're back to, to a good temperature. So again, as we think about calves that are in a hypothermic state, a rectal thermometer might give us an indication of potentially where that calf is at, but really need to be using our observation skills and understanding what's happening with that calf as we warm it back up and then get it back to a place where it can go back with the cow. Yep, that's exactly right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. I guess anything else you'd like to highlight that you really think people should be paying attention to or be aware of as we move into the calving season? I guess nothing else comes to mind at this point. Well, I really appreciate you all joining me today, and I thought we had some good discussion. Hopefully, this will be helpful to those of you who are listening as you are getting up for calving or maybe in the midst of it. I would mention at the beef.unl.ed website, there's a number of resources on this topic. Uh, there's some articles, webinars, also NEB guides that can be helpful as you think about managing the cow at calving. So I would encourage you to use that as a tool, as a resource to help you as you get ready for the calving season. And we wish you well as you enter into that time of year when really for many of us, I think is one of the most fun time of years in terms of getting to see those new calves on the ground and, and starting the next calf crop.